Good morning from Washington, D.C., where President Donald Trump delivered only his second Oval Office address to the nation last night. Coronavirus has obviously become and will likely remain the number one story in the media, both because of its public health impact and the changes it will make to our economy and that of the world. For the moment, however, we're going to return to the story the virus knocked out of the top spot in the headlines. For about half an hour, we'll let you forget about handwashing and social distancing as we discuss the now two men who are fighting for the chance to challenge President Donald Trump in November for the right to control the Oval Office for themselves. Tuesday, former Vice President Joe Biden notched his second successful major election night in a row following a Super Tuesday that shot him into the delegate lead in the Democratic nomination hunt. My name is Paul Kincaid. I'm the Director of Congressional Outreach here at FMC, and I'm joined by two of our former members of Congress who will analyze those two Tuesday nights, where the Democratic Party goes from here, and potential matchups in November. Joining me is the former head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and president of FMC, Martin Frost. Mr. Frost served in Congress from Texas from 1979 until 2005. His fellow participant is former Chief Deputy Whip of the Republican Caucus in the House of Representatives, Mr. Peter Roscom. Mr. Roscom served Illinois in the House from 2007 to 2019. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us today. Martin, why don't you start by giving us a quick overview of where you see this election and where you see it going. Well, it's uh, the nomination fight on the Democratic side is all but over. I know that uh, Bernie Sanders has uh, said he wants to continue on for a while uh, with the uh, the next debate and with the next round uh, next week of uh, primaries, but this is basically over, barring anything unforeseen. And the only question is how Biden then bring, brings Bernie and his followers under the tent. Uh, that'll be a challenge, but I think he's up to it. And, Peter, where do you see the the election as we stand today? Well, I think uh, if you would have asked me 30 days ago or, uh, or yeah, about 30 days ago, uh, the Democratic Party looked to be uh, just in chaos to me. It looked as if Bernie Sanders was likely to be the nominee and it was going to have huge negative implications, in my opinion, down ballot for them. Um, things changed quickly, and the party came in focus, became highly functional by getting rid of, uh, or, you know, not getting rid of, but um, clearing the field for uh, for Joe Biden, getting the matchup that they wanted, and now Biden has overperformed. So I think it went from, uh, you know, not likely to defeat Donald Trump to a very competitive race for the fall. Great. Thank you both. And I will start with uh with the second question on the list that uh that we went through a lot of our callers have submitted questions and so we'll get to those uh in, in a few minutes as well the first question obviously was going to be who do you think will be the democratic nominee for president but it sounds like both of you believe that that former vice president joe biden has put himself in a commanding lead and so the second question is do you think that that vice president biden will be able to defeat president trump in the november election and mr oscom he has the home field advantage so we'll start with the republican side yeah, look, I, I think that um, I think that Donald Trump was going after Joe Biden early in this process for a reason, and that is that Biden has a lot of crossover appeal, um, Obama nostalgia, um, sort of a, uh, a Midwestern strength to him that I think is very compelling. And um, Donald Trump was was un- unable to knock him out. Now, that said, I, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that Biden is the next president of the United States, clearly based on the pace at which things are changing and some of his own liabilities, that is, Biden's as a candidate. 
So I, I think it will be very competitive. If I were to if I were to have to handicap it now, I think the the White House response to coronavirus is going to be on the ballot in some ways. And if this uh, if if this moves in a direction that gets really out of control, I think the white the party in power that is the White House that is Donald Trump could find himself disciplined at the ballot box. And let me, this is Martin. Um, I think it'll be a very close race. Um, some of the pundits recently have been saying, "Oh well, that the Biden should now concentrate on uh, on states like North Carolina and Arizona." Uh, I think that's baloney. I think this race will still be fought out in the Midwest, in the uh, states that uh, Democrats have carried in recent years, but didn't carry in the last election. I think it'll be a very competitive situation in states like uh, Michigan, like Wisconsin, uh, like Minnesota, uh, that the Democrats did carry, but only narrowly, um, and, and Pennsylvania. That's where this election is going to be determined. Biden right now looks like a very good candidate in those, race, in those seats, but uh, you have an election. You have a long time uh, in politics. Uh, as we've just found out, a week is, a, is an eternity. So I think Biden has certainly has a reasonable chance of winning, and I think this race will be fought out in the Midwest. And so as we look ahead, and, and you both look at the general election with, with similar eyes, it seems, with obviously probably a little on, on either side. Martin, what do you think the key has been to Vice President Biden's turnaround in the Democratic primaries? Well, it's uh, it's pretty obvious what happened is that uh, um, South Carolina went overwhelmingly for Biden uh, with the endorsement of uh, Jim Clyburn. And then the other candidates uh, looked at the situation and said, I can't get there from here. And you uh, you had this uh, event in Dallas, in my hometown, where uh, both Buttigieg and uh, Amy Klobuchar endorsed Biden, and it just became a tidal wave. Uh, all the other Democrats realized that uh, this was not in the cards for them. Uh, no one could have foreseen that, quite frankly, a couple of weeks ago. But politics is a very strange business, and uh, there's a fundamental lesson in politics. Don't fight last year's battle. Uh, every election is different, and this election on the Democratic side has been very different in terms of the nomination fight. And, Mr. Roskin, what have, what have Republicans seen in, in this turnaround from, that, that can be a harbinger in the November election? Well, I think it's interesting to go to South Carolina and basically look at that was the first time that African-Americans as a large group stepped into the election process in terms of the first contest where they had uh, a, a dominant voice. And they made their choice and I think led the Democratic Party in a way by saying we're not a, we're not comfortable with these other candidates. We're comfortable with the man with whom we've had a long-standing relationship and we choose him. And I think it's a it, it, it's interesting to look then at that group as a, a, a demographic and a voting block and their significance in terms of leadership within the Democratic Party. So where it foreshadows, you know, um, in, in terms of intensity and voter turnout is going to be fascinating. The the Bernie Sanders phenomenon of attracting lots of new people to the polls um, just didn't happen. And, the, you know, the so-called revolution that he was describing just didn't bubble up to the surface. Um, yeah, a I, lot of traditional yeah. voters came out to make it this different. I have one other observation on this. The black turnout obviously was very important. The other piece of this was suburban 
college-educated women. And, uh, and many of these women in the past said were independents, or some of them had voted Republican, and I think they came out in force against Bernie. They did not want a socialist. Um, I, I had a lot of white suburban areas in my district, and these voters, and it's very interesting, some of these voters are socially liberal, but economically they're conservative, and they felt like Bernie, a socialist, was a threat to their, uh, their, their daily life, was a threat to their economic well-being, and they came out to vote both for Biden but in, uh, also very much against Bernie. And one of our first questions from the participants who are listening in today, March 17th we'll see primaries in Florida, Illinois, Ohio, and Arizona. Obviously three of these states, possibly three, at least two, will be battleground purple states. Illinois has, has been pretty reliably Democratic mm-hmm. in presidential elections. And two of them have very large minority populations, which we've already discussed the, the importance of. What do you both see happening in these pivotal, pivotal races? And, uh, Mr. Oskin, we'll start with you. Yeah, I don't see any change happening. Um, I'm calling you from suburban Chicago today. Joe Biden is scheduled to be in Illinois um, uh, tomorrow and um, has a series of events, at least on the on the books now. And I, I think the trend the trend is is going to continue. Um, one 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 advantage that Biden has had that will begin to evaporate is he hasn't had any he didn't have any debate. Um, in the in those days of his run up um, from you know let's say South Carolina on through this big um, this big surge that he's had and apparently Sunday night's debate with Bernie is going to be on it's still territory that Biden has demonstrated some vulnerability in the past and I think that he and his team need to be very mindful of um, uh, of, of at this point playing, you know, the old football parlance. Now they're playing prevent defense, and um, they'll move into that mode. But I don't see that changing absent some outrageous thing that could uh, happen at the debate. But I don't think that's likely. Yeah, these uh, these races next week will be a landslide in favor of Biden. And when that's having, having said that, then. Bernie's got to figure a way to get out of the race. It makes no sense after next week for him to continue in taking this to the convention. And and I think kind of branching off that question a little bit and, and one that, that we have been hearing about for quite a while, it's a race between an establishment Democrat and, and what Mr. Oscar rightly called a revolution-based uh, man who's been an independent for much of his life, who has been with the Democratic Party, who the Democratic Party cleared the field for in his home state of Vermont frequently to run for Senate. Do What do either of you see as his pathway and choices going forward? We saw in, in the Clinton-Sanders uh, Democratic primary, they took it to, to the convention, and, and there obviously was a known, a known nominee going into the convention, but the discussions continued until very close to, to that convention date. With Milwaukee looming and with the perceived need to have a, a unity candidate to face, to face Mr. Trump, does Mr. Sanders get out of the Senator Sanders get out of the race? Does he endorse heartily Senator, uh, Vice President Biden and encourage his, his legions of, of supporters both online and, and financially to support the former vice president, or do you see this devolving into more of that Sanders versus Clinton motif that we saw in 2016? Which which one of us do you want to start on that one? You can go ahead. 
Yeah, I think that um, reason will prevail. I'm not sure exactly how this will transpire. Some people have suggested that one way to make it happen is for Biden to bring a number of the um, people who've been working on the uh, campaign for Bernie into his campaign in paid positions. And I don't know that he's not going to bring everybody in, but to to embrace them, uh, to make them a part of the team effort. Um, I don't think Bernie wants to go out in a bitter way. He's 79 years old. This is the last time he will run for president. Uh, and I think he's probably at this point looking toward history, and I doubt that he's going to uh, cause a lot of problems, although Biden has to work very carefully and very quickly to uh, bring him into the fold. I think this is Joe Biden's first big test, or second big test. Um, and he's got to be very skillful in navigating through this because he will um, – he, he obviously cannot afford to, to eliminate Sanders nor his constituency. He, he needs a level of enthusiasm. But communicating that he's brought Bernie Sanders into the fold without alienating people who uh, are, are opposed to Sanders from, as Martin pointed out, uh, the the type of influence that he might have from a financial point of view is going to be uh, a, a significant effort. And I imagine that it is an absolute full court press right now because the tone of this is going to be very important for them setting up for the race for the fall. And I think what's going to happen is that Biden will pick out some areas that he agrees with Bernie on and uh, and acknowledge that credit Bernie with having raised some of these issues, um, and uh, hopefully this will be helpful in the process. And as we look back uh, to the discussion we had about March 17th, Florida and Arizona, obviously two states with heavy uh, racial minority populations in them, Arizona as a border state, Florida obviously with with a sizable Hispanic population and African-American population throughout various parts of that state. You both have talked about the importance of racial minority voters for the Democratic Party, but traditionally they have been a, a group that has been slow to the polls in November and, and not always the, the block that many Democratic uh, pundits and, and analysts see them as. With that in mind, when we look ahead to next Tuesday to Florida and Arizona voting, how much should be given, how much importance should be given by pundits and by people who analyze the, the general election in November to the participation of, of these minority voters, both in Florida and Arizona, but also, as, as Mr. Roscom alluded to, their previous participation in states like South Carolina that became kind of the bulwark of Vice President Biden's resurgence. And Mr. Roscom, we'll start with you. Well, I think it, it, it could be foreshadowing in some ways um, if, these, if these numbers are continue and they're, and they're significant for Vice President Biden. The, the, the caveat is that, look, once somebody has a nomination um, and it's essentially FDI complete, the level of intensity tends to wane somewhat. So, I, if, you know, I wouldn't overinterpret a lighter turnout, per se, if that were to happen for Biden moving forward, um, because I think the race is, is basically over. Also, don't forget about the uh, the Cuban influence in uh, Florida and uh, Bernie's um, embrace of Castro, uh, even though he will say, no, he didn't really mean all of that. Um, that's going to overemphasize the support um, for, for Biden in Florida. 
Um, there's still a lot of people in the Cuban community, even though the younger generation is somewhat different than the older generation, who have no use for, for Castro. And Bernie made an extraordinary mistake uh, in saying nice things about Castro. And that's going to make, the, uh, I believe, the um, spread in Florida even greater than it otherwise would have been. And as a Florida native who uh, who will be looking at that, that uh, that's definitely something to to watch next Tuesday. Let's throw it back a little bit more, back to a time when there were more than just the two white men in the Democratic nomination fight. Obviously, there has been a lot since Hillary Clinton lost the election in 2016 and talked about the cracks she had put in the glass ceiling. There were a lot of discussions about various chances for Democrats to nominate a woman as their as their standard bearer. The last one to drop out was Elizabeth Warren. Senator Warren dropped out just uh, very recently and has yet to endorse uh, anybody going forward. So I, I guess two questions. One has come from our group of participants. Why do you think Elizabeth Warren wasn't more effective in the primaries? And the second question, uh, do you believe her endorsement, A, will be valuable to the person who she endorses, and B, do you believe that that endorsement will be forthcoming, or do you think that will wait until Milwaukee? And, Martin, we'll start with you. Well, it, it's very hard to judge that. Um, uh, if she has any thought that she might, and I, I emphasize might, uh, be considered for the vice presidential spot, she's certainly not going to want to endorse Bernie. That doesn't mean that she's going to run out tomorrow to endorse Biden. Um, as far as uh, what happened to her as a candidate, that's very difficult to read. Um, she's uh, she's bright. Uh, she has a lot of good ideas, but somehow people didn't connect with her. I'm not sure what the real reason is. Maybe they uh, viewed her as a schoolmarm. Maybe they uh, thought she was lecturing to them. I'm not sure what the answer was. Uh, she's a very capable, uh, talented uh, politician. It just didn't work for her um, with the Democratic primary electorate. Now, when she endorses, uh, if she does, uh, I don't know what the answer to that is. My guess is that uh, once this is uh, uh, completely settled, that she will endorse Biden. She may not do it in the next week or so, but she will ultimately endorse Biden. And uh, then we'll see what happens from there. I have no idea who he's going to put on the ticket with him. I think it probably will be a woman. The question is, will it be a black woman or is that required? Or could it be a white woman? Uh, and I, he, he's the only one that can answer that. Um, if uh, if it's not to be a black woman, then Amy Klobuchar would be the outstanding pick for most people. If he decides he needs to have an African-American woman on the tick with it, ticket with him, then uh, I can't tell who that would be. I think part of Elizabeth Warren's challenge was that she was perceived to be insincere, and that's, um, that's, that's really quite something. And I think some of this goes back to her claims in terms of her um, ethnic background and her submission to a test and and so forth. She made a, an accusation against Bernie Sanders that just rang hollow, and that was his claim that uh, a woman couldn't be elected president. And it it for for an outsider, it fell it fell short of being true. And you just cannot imagine, you know, of, of all things. Sanders does seem to be uh, sincere in his views, and he was an enthusiast, and he actually was was active in supporting Hillary Clinton. So the notion that that somehow he was uh, um, sexist or misogynist or had a low view of the capacity of a woman as a candidate, I just don't think 
um, resonated. The other thing is she just didn't have sure footing on Medicare for all, and we know how she handled that. And so for those reasons, I think she just, Democratic primary voters measured her, she fell short, and they moved on. And I so think part we, of it, oh. this is Martin, I think part of it uh, was the comparison with um, one of the other women in the race, and that was Amy Klobuchar. Even though um, Senator Klobuchar never got a very large vote, she was a credible alternative female candidate. And I think that uh, Warren did not compare very favorably with her. I think Klobuchar was a uh, uh, more of a moderate, more of a measured person, had some more uh, uh, personality. Uh, it was not a good comparison for Warren. Thank you both. And so we have in your minds our nominee, Vice President Joe Biden for the Democrats and, and President Donald Trump for the Republicans, and we move past Milwaukee in the summer and past Charlotte in the summer, where the Democrats and Republicans will hold their respective conventions. And let's move to the second Tuesday in November. What do you think that President Trump's strategy will be to defeat Vice President Joe Biden, in, in both your minds, in the general election? And, Martin, we'll start with you. Well, I think it's pretty clear what his strategy is going to be. It's going to be to demonize Biden to the extent that he's able to do that. Um, and I don't know, you know, you've got this uh, senator from Wisconsin who was going to have hearings about uh, Burisma and about Biden's son. He's temporarily withdrawn that. Uh, we'll see if they decide to pursue that. But clearly that's going to be part of uh, Trump's game plan. The other part, and this has been talked about by some of the pundits on, on television, the Republicans have put together a tremendously effective online uh, social media campaign. And Democrats are playing catch-up right now, and they better get caught up uh, because um, uh, Trump's a tough campaigner. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm not sympathetic to Trump, don't get me wrong, but he's a tough campaigner, and uh, he's gonna, this is going to be a no-holds-barred fight, um, and uh, Biden better be ready. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the the Burisma issue is going to be front and center, and we'll we'll continue to see that that litigated. And in the minds of a lot of voters, I think it will, um, in some ways, cancel out the the impeachment effort on um, that was underway against President Trump earlier. And then at that point, um, it could be largely an economic question. And that's where Trump, up until now, had wanted the debate to be around because the economy was doing so well. And we know all these statistics that are, um, that are impressive in terms of growth and participation and unemployment and so forth. The coronavirus is the X factor that is um, nobody has seen coming. And the, it, 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 like I said, it could end up being uh, a very tough disciplinarian this fall for the Trump administration, depending on the direction that this goes. And I think conversely, how, how do you see Vice President Biden going after President Trump, whether it's the coronavirus or the economy, or, or if, as former Mayor Mike Bloomberg has talked about, if the the president is going to talk about Senator or uh, Vice President Biden's sons, will the vice president go after the family of President Trump? And and Mr. Ruskin, we'll start with you. Yeah, I think I I think that's likely. I think one of the things that Biden has to be careful about now is in in some ways not playing Trump's game. And here's what I mean by that: 
Um, remember when Marco Rubio fell into the trap of, uh, you know, making the same kind of jokes and so forth that Trump was making during the primary, and they were, you know, he, he regretted that. And I think Biden, uh, from what I've seen, has taken to, you know, swearing at some people on the campaign trail and so forth. And this is obviously somebody who's made his focal point of his campaign a, a call and a return to civility. So my sense is that Biden and his team need to sort of reset, reorient, and be demonstrate a level of discipline moving forward because they're campaigning against a guy who they've never campaigned against before. Um, and while Donald Trump has, uh, you know, vulnerabilities that are significant, um, he's a counterpuncher, unlike I think we've seen in our lifetimes. Well, I think Biden will um, attract a lot of uh, talent to his campaign. Uh, hopefully he will listen to the advice he gets. He wants to present himself as someone who can unite the country, also someone who can raise our credibility in the rest of the world. While this is not a, a determinative issue in an American campaign, uh, it is important to discuss uh, how we work with our allies around the world, wh whether we're respected or not respected. And I think that a major issue for him will be that he will return respect to the office of the presidency and respect to America in the eyes of the rest of the world. Thank you both. And we'll take our last question today from one of our participants. We talked a little bit about coronavirus and, and what it will mean to the economy and to various different things from a, a political standpoint. But I think one, one important question is, how do you think coronavirus concerns will impact the rest of the primaries and potentially the general elections, both uh, you know, somewhat on the political side, but more from a fundamental logistics side of if, if large groups are banned and if, if people are trying to avoid face-to-face -face contact throughout you know, the rest of the season, what impact could it have on the actual voting and the actual turnout in these states, both in the, like I said, in the primary, but also in November? And Martin, we'll start with you. Well, let me start. Yeah, this is the primary season is going to be shut down, um, and it's going to be shut down because Bernie is no longer a viable candidate. Um, and what that will mean is that the vice president will then have to be very careful. Um, he will not be able to do a lot of uh, very large rallies, maybe not any in the next couple of months. A lot of it will have to be online. Um, a lot of it will have to be through uh, televised speeches. Um, it will cause him to alter the way in which he campaigns right now. Now, what happens for the fall, we don't know when this thing is going to run its course. Um, and I would think one of the key things is that the president, while he said he wants we should all be bipartisan, if the president then immediately goes back on the attack against Democrats and the media for trying to stir up what he considered to be a hoax, he better not do any more of that at large rallies or he's going to be in very serious trouble. And I'm not sure whether he can control himself, whether he can stop saying those kind of things at big rallies. So it gets very interesting. Biden has got to present himself as a calm, sane individual, and somehow someone has got to tell Trump to stop all the partisanship, to stop the attacks on the news media, to stop the attacks on Democrats about, uh, uh, about the virus. And uh, we'll see if he'll listen to that advice. He's a hard person to give advice to. 
Yeah, I don't think it's likely that he'll stop. I think he'll he'll continue and will um, kind of keep keep going down that direction. And I the the ramifications of the coronavirus at this point still are just wild. We're wildly blind to these things. Um, just anecdotally, last or earlier this week, my wife and I early voted outside of Chicago. Um, because I thought, you know, I'm not really interested in going out on Tuesday, March 17th with a bunch of other people. And um, I'm going to get into a fairly quiet, you know, alternative polling place and get in and out and wash my hands and be done with it. So I I would imagine that it will have some influence um, all the way around. The, The scope and scale of the virus from an economic impact, I think, is going to be more significant and more dispositive for uh, the campaign in the fall than Trump's tone. I think people have factored in Trump's tone and his, his disposition and so forth. But the, the factor in terms of where the economy lands as a result of this is still the big unknown. It could be that it is, you know, that these precautions are enough and that it will, it will wane quickly and then the underlying structure of the economy is still strong and it comes roaring back. It could be, however, that this has a long-term uh, impact that could be negative from an economic point of view. Yeah, I don't think there's any question about that. And we just have to wait and see what how this plays out. I would like to make one other observation. Um, the question is whether Trump can in any way be like Reagan. Uh, and I'm serious when I say that. And I'm not sure he can be. Reagan um, knew what he didn't know. He surrounded himself by very capable people. I served with five presidents. I always thought Reagan's staff was the best staff of any president I served with, either Democrat or Republican. Now, I don't know that Trump's capable of listening to the, to smart people, surrounding him with people who, uh, who understand exactly what's going on and somehow taking their advice. That's going to be a very interesting thing to watch in the months ahead. Thank you, Martin, and thank you, Mr. Ruskin. Thank you both for your time, and thank you to all of you who called in today. Obviously, with Washington, D.C. having just declared a state of emergency, as you might imagine, as we allow you to return to the all-coronavirus, all-the-time news cycle, events like this teleconference that allow us to keep you informed while avoiding large groups of people may become the norm for a while. We at FMC are planning to continue our programming to the best of our ability, and we'll keep you updated on what that means. For now, make sure you wash your hands, and thank you for joining us. From FMC headquarters here in Washington, I'm Paul Kincaid. Have a great day.